Well, about this time, you might be wondering, how can we possibly keep having more things to say? (laughs) But we do, and we will. (laughs) So I want to um, move off of kind of moving in a direction from what Guy was speaking about last night, the third noble truth, in case you forgot the remainderless cessation relinquishment of craving, of clinging, as the Buddha described it, this unshakable deliverance of mind. This is one of my favorite quotations. I think he read it. That unshakable deliverance of the heart. That indeed is the essence of the holy life. That is its goal. Just to remember this unshakable deliverance of mind and heart. And so it stands to reason that if this is the essence of the holy life of the Buddha's teaching, that everything he taught was in service of helping us purify the heart and mind because it's the pure heart, the pure mind, that can recognize Nibbana. In a moment, the complete relinquishment, or even this momentary moments of freedom. So all of his teachings are to help us purify in this way. From the Dalai Lama. When the mind, the heart, is completely free of negative emotions and tendencies, we could say kalesa, it understands and knows all phenomena. It is only because there are obscuring veils between the mind and its object that we are unable to know all things. When these veils have been removed, no new power is needed. Seeing or recognizing and being aware is the nature of the mind, the heart itself. As long as the mind exists, it has the ability to know. But this ability does not reveal itself until all obscurations have been removed. This is what it means to realize enlightenment. So what I want to talk about tonight is in terms of the the utter relinquishment, but also the moment-to-moment momentary freedom, recognizing that the whole range of the Buddha's teachings, all the activities of our life can be in service of this recognizing when there's kalesa and qualities of purifying the heart and mind. It's not only accessible in the very subtle levels of meditation. Everything he taught. Remember, I mentioned the sense of momentary freedom. The way Ajahn Buddhadasa speaks about that. He has this great talk called Nibbana for Everyone. (laughs) He was talking to Thai people quite some, I mean, he's no longer with us, to Thai people some time ago the Thai lay people, because they had come to be a sense that uh, Nibbana was just 
meant when you were dead or it was just for some other people. And he's saying, no, Nibbana is for everyone. But anyway, just this little part, he's saying, we look further to the fact that Kalesa are also Sankara Dhamma, compounded phenomena. In other words, Kalesas have, are things that have birth and death. So when the Kalesa occur, when the causal conditions are present, and when the causal conditions that bring about the Kalesa, they simply become extinct, just dissolve. Just as, as Guy was saying, the sense of the, um, the sense of the coolness of Nibbana, just the flame blows out. The kalesas in that moment ceases to exist. Although this extinction is temporary, or in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily, the phenomenon has the real sense of Nibbana, even though it is not the lasting one. Hence, Temporary Nibbana does occur for those of us who unavoidably have some impurities left. Should there be any of us with one or two impurities rolling around? <laughs> but so this is really what, we're, what I'm basing this talk on and what the Buddha's teaching is based on, you know, that The whole aspect of practice, not only meditation bhavana, but often when, when the teachings would be talked about, it's called dana sila bhavana, the three pillars, generosity, virtue, non-harming behavior, bhavana, meditation, that all of those are part of the path. And when I was first um, introduced to this practice in India many, many years ago, and just did you know ten day retreats with Goenka, and of course the the it was meditation retreats, so it was really about meditation. Although of course he talked about dana and sila, generosity and virtue a lot, but the meditation of course is what we were doing, and where's the fascination? And when we came back to this country, the the, the Westerners who brought it back, kind of taking uh, Buddhist meditation out of the context of Buddhist cultures in the Theravada, out of the context of the cultures in Sri Lanka, in Thailand, in Burma. And the meditation aspect is kind of more emphasized because it's really what we're interested in where, you know, the real subtlety comes where we really can recognize how the mind works and what freedom is. And, we, you know, the teachers would talk about, of course, the importance of generosity, the importance of sila. And so I'm not saying as the teachers, it's just how I heard it, but I know I'm not the only one. It's kind of like that stuff was good, that was nice, and you needed to, you know, have some sila, have some generosity, so we could meditate, you know, and really get there, right? And uh, the famous saying of Munindraji, one of Joseph's teachers, when he came over, he said, you know, you guys... Here you're like, you're in a boat rowing as hard as you can, but you forgot to untie it from the dock. You've got to pay attention to Donna and Sila, really important aspects. And so more and more over the years, I'm coming to deeply appreciate, not that, okay, we got to do that to prepare the mind, but that these aspects of the path, they're aspects of transforming consciousness. 
They're ways of living that are part of our path of liberation. All aspects of the path, everything the Buddha taught, he didn't teach something extra just because, you know, it'd make you feel good. Everything is, as he said, the essence of the path is this this freeing the heart and mind from the habit of kalesa, of greed, of uh, uh, hatred, aversion, of delusion. So I want to talk a bit about all of this tonight and also probably into the, in my next talk as well. So starting to see that all these different ways can help us to cultivate to transform the habits of our consciousness because different aspects of our experience are available at different times depending on the conditions. Here, when you're deep in a retreat, there are times when that subtlety that Guy was talking about last night is really available and we can really appreciate it. But even on retreat, is that available to you all the time? Heck no. <laughs> and you think, well, okay, now I've just got to slump along, slump along because nothing really good's happening, but I got to slump along till I can get there and see the gap. And that's really wasting, not understanding the opportunity that every moment offers us to really see what's going on in the heart and mind and work in transforming our habits of consciousness. So it's no, no secret, right? I don't think it is by this time, at how these kalesa habits operate so often beneath the level of conscious awareness. You know how they just suddenly pop up when you really think, I'm done with that one. Things are going fine. Things are just going well. And all of a sudden, it just comes roaring up. You know, we've seen through this thing, but suddenly greed or aversion or whatever just reemerges. And that can trigger doubt if we don't really understand how subtle and deep the habits of the kalesas are. If we start to understand that and recognize all these different ways that we can really be purifying these habits, then we don't get into doubt. We just see, okay, what's, what's up now? What's available? So we're working in this level of Mingyur Rinpoche describes meditative awareness because sati, mindfulness, is the thread that runs through all the different aspects, dana, sila, bhavana. Nothing's really possible without mindfulness, without recognizing. So Mingyur Rinpoche describing meditative awareness as we become cognizant or we know the quality of the mind not only, not just the phenomenon, the object that's perceived by the mind, but we're really becoming more and more tuned in, I would say, to the quality that's present in the mind that's aware in any particular moment. That's really the level we're working on with all these different ways of mm, purifying, of shifting the habits. So the one model I just want to refer to tonight and next week, kind of the, the three, it's, it's called like the three levels, you could say, 
of kalesa or of purification that come up in our experience. So the first, in terms of, of kalesa, is called the torments, or the kalesa of transgression. <laughs> and this deals with actions and speech. When the kalesa is so strong, it comes up so strong or so unseen that it um, gives rise to intention motivation that leads to action or speech. And this is, on this level, is where we're working with Donna and Sila to kind of counter, to purify this level of kalesa of transgression. The second level is called the obsessive. I think you all have a sense of what that means. <laughs> obsessive kalesa. Maybe you're not acting it out, but again and again in the mind and the mind, you know, you just can't put it down. And maybe you don't even recognize it, but that as the level of collectedness of mind is what really begins to protect and purify on this level of obsessive kalesa. And the third level that's talked about is called the latent, the underlying potential for kalesa to arise given the appropriate conditions, right? That's when you're minding your own business and everything's copacetic and suddenly out of seemingly nowhere, zoom, it comes up. They say it's like, like a seed, you know, that has the potential to, to sprout if it's given water and sunshine and all the appropriate conditions. So the latent, this level of greed, hatred, delusion, Buddha says is abandoned not by acts, but by wisely seeing, by wise attention, by wisdom. So I'm going to talk about that one next week. But I'll start now, tonight, by talking about this first level of transgressive torments and Donna and Sila and see how far we get. (laughs) So starting to talk about generosity, not just as a nice thing, a good thing, what we should do for people less fortunate, which is, I mean, that's not bad, which is kind of how I was brought up, which is a certain distancing kind of a thing, you know. But thinking about Donna as a transformer of consciousness, a transformer of the habits of heart and mind. And so with all of these things, we're really, our interest is in the quality in the heart and the mind more than the outer appearance. It always comes down to intention, right? So generosity dana, as I'm sure you're aware, is something that the Buddha talked about a lot. Usually when he first began talking to lay people, generosity would be the first thing he would talk about and then go on to sila. And it's, it's in a way he laid it down as the foundational quality of the whole sasana, of the whole system he set up of 
nuns and monks and lay people living together and supporting one another. It's this really ennobling quality of the heart on our path of awakening. He often began many, I think someone referred to this, many times when he'd be meeting either one person or a whole group of people, and he could, with his all-seeing mind, could recognize someone he thought could be ready to hear the true Dhamma. But he would begin by talking about Dana, talking about Sila, not as this is what you should do, but because when the heart, the mind, tunes into the quality of generosity, it brightens the heart, it brightens the mind, it uplifts, it brings the happiness of the wholesome. And it's really interesting, even just thinking about generosity can do that, one's own or another. And not trying to, but just noticing is really quite powerful. So, for example, just this morning, before I came up here, I was having breakfast and I was just reading the headlines on the BBC, which is never a very uplifting experience. So I was reading the headlines and just, you know, my, I could notice my consciousness, my heart was getting heavy, more contracted, just reading. And then as I, as I got to, you know, at the end of whatever news, it's like, Everything's reported. This was said on Twitter. That was said on Twitter. It's just like everybody on Twitter is out there, you know, putting down everybody else who has a different point of view. I'm thinking, and this is the news. So-and-so said this, and so-and-so said that, and they think this. It's like one giant papancha that's taking over the world. It's really kind of shocking. Anyway, <laughs> so after 10 minutes, I'm like, ugh. So well, let me just look. I just need to look at my notes for the talk. I wasn't trying to even thinking about it. I was just looking. And I was looking at the Donna part. I hadn't looked at and have lots of different stories. So I was just picking out which stories. Five minutes, that's all I did, just looking. Put it down. The whole um, tenor of my consciousness had completely shifted. I was feeling really happy really appreciating from reading about little stories, which I already knew, of other people's generosity. It just touches that place of generosity and wholesomeness in one's own mind stream. And it's really like, uh, it's uplift, so happy, but not like the happy of, oh, I feel happy, I feel so good, this is pleasant. Yeah, that's true, but it's, that's incidental, really. It's the happiness the mind is bright, the heart is energized because it's the happiness of that coolness of a moment of no kalesa. That heaviness and just is gone and just the happiness of generosity, of, of non-clinging, of appreciating, of connecting, it brightens the heart and mind. It's really, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Because then you go out and read it, okay, let me feel happy, let me feel good, that's a different thing. But to see the power of that, is really very strong. So generosity as a motivation and intention in the heart-mind, it's really transform. obviously it's transforming in a moment of generosity, the habit of, of greed or holding on or needing something. It also, interestingly, in that moment, is transforming the, the kalesa of ill will. There's a saying, I didn't understand it for a long time, but 
um, kind of a commentarial. If you're feeling really uh, not good about someone or annoyed about someone, give them a gift. And I thought, what's that? But it's assuming you give a gift not to, here, take this and be happy, you know. (laughs) You're actually really giving it from the heart of generosity. And you can't be generous without it cutting through the sense of separation, without the sense of me and others. Like, really, oh, please, take this. And it really cuts through ill will and that sense of separation, the separate fearful self. It's a very interesting quality. So again, it's not so much about what's given or what you should do, but this motivation in the heart and mind. Another, another aspect of it is when we're really consciously tuning in the mindfulness you might notice greed and you might consciously tune into generosity. So there's like three different moments of happiness about it or three different ways we experience the happiness of the pure heart and mind about it. One is in the moment of motivation where you really just take the moment to, to tune in. Yes, to have this time or this thing I want to give or whatever it is and tuning into that motivation of offering. And that really brightens and uplifts the heart and mind. The second is in the actual doing of it, either the giving or the sharing your time or whatever it is, the actual doing of it. Assuming all of this, we're doing it consciously, doing it with awareness. And third is in reflecting afterwards, wise reflection on that act of generosity. And this is, I'll, I'll again read a sutta later, but we often don't do that. But to think, even at times, of small generous actions that you've done when you're having a hard time is a way to really transform the consciousness. It's something we often don't do. We have such an idea, that's just being egotistical, I'm so great. If it is egotistical, I'm so great, it won't have the effect of brightening the heart and mind. You'll be able to tell. But sometimes just look, oh yeah, there was that time. And you're remembering it kind of in a feeling way, in a motivational way. You can just remember that moment of sharing that mutuality. And again, the wholesomeness of it just arises. It's what you could say, it's kama vipaka. Vipaka is like the result of a moment of kama, a moment of action, a moment of intention. So the comic result of wholesome action, it'll come up in memory. Have you noticed that sometimes here on retreat? You maybe notice it in the other way. <laughs> You're having all these memories of all the unwholesome things you did in your life and all the remorse. I know a lot of people are having that. That's also a kind of vipaka. But there can be times when you might really, a memory might come up of some wholesome act of generosity you did. And you can just feel and appreciate that. Let that in. That's a wholesome moment too. So as I said, um, when I grew up, in the sense of generosity as being good and appropriate was always there. Certainly I find in many ways, this culture here in America is a very generous culture. 
You know, I mean, a lot of people offer a lot of time and money and support in many ways. Uh, but what I never understood, and that just might have been my loss from how I grew up, is it was always kind of more outer directed to the result of what you give, which is pretty much our sense of our focus on the object. We focus on the phenomenon. But what I didn't understand really until I spent a lot of time in Thailand and Burma practicing in meditation centers and monasteries and just being there in a culture that values generosity was the joyful, contagious aspect of tuning into this quality of generosity, both on the offering and also on the receiving, which I really didn't grow up understanding at all or experiencing. But to really see the wholesome goodness, the the wholesome qualities of heart and mind are really contagious. So are also, (laughs) so are also the kalesas. But in some ways, like I said, just reading this morning, I just read a few stories and the whole mind really transformed in that moment without planning it, because it really, goodness kind of touches goodness in a way. It, it, it lets it come up and manifest. It's really in some ways more our truest nature. It really transforms consciousness. So I want to just, well, first to say, the Buddha, in a way, set up his whole sasana so that generosity was the foundation. This is from the Buddha. Bhikkhus, Brahmins and householders are very helpful for you. They provide you with the requisite of robes, alms food, lodgings, and medicines in times of sickness. Those are the four requisites that that bhikkhus and nuns can accept from lay people. And you, bhikkhus, are very helpful to Brahmins and householders as you teach them the Dhamma that is good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, with the correct meaning and wording, and you proclaim the spiritual life in its fulfillment and complete purity. Thus, this spiritual life is lived with mutual support for the purpose of crossing the flood and making a complete end of suffering. There's a way that this having to go out every day for alms food. Monks in particular aren't allowed to keep food overnight. So there's a sense you can't completely isolate yourself from lay people. This mutual aspect of generosity is really at the core of supporting each other to cross the flood. I love it that that's there. And even, you know, even today, in Thailand, in Burma, even if in, the, in the, some of the monasteries or meditation centers I stay, there's cooking, which the food is offered, but it's cooked. But even so, the monks will go out every morning on alms round with their bowls. And even in some very poor areas, very poor neighborhoods, not everyone, but people know they're coming. They always have a little, a little um, novice running ahead, ringing a bell in Burma, so people know they're coming. So I've watched, I've gone along and watched how there's people who come running out, and a lot of people don't, 
But the ones who want to, they come running out and sometimes with their little kids and they stand there and what they can offer is a spoonful of rice or two spoonfuls of rice. Often it's just that. But the sense of, there's just this sense of appreciation and respect on both sides, you know. The, the, the monks, they don't, they don't acknowledge it personally. It's not like a personal gift. It's an offering to the whole sangha to keep it going. But there's this sense of such appreciation. One time, years ago, after a big cyclone had uh, in Burma, had really um, destroyed a great uh, deal of people's homes and a lot of the rice, the rice um, crop. And so people in the area around this meditation center I often stay were really didn't have, they had much less than usual, and usual isn't very much. But then some group had offered a lot of money for uh, what's called a rice donna. So each, each household would come and get a big bag, 50-pound bag of rice and go home with it. Well, a friend of ours, uh, a, a monk uh, from Mexico, he was staying there. So, so in the next morning, he said, when they went out on alms round, so every day when they'd go out on alms round, there's the usual, kind of the usual families that would come and offer. You know, you kind of knew who was going to offer. So this next day, after the rice donna, so many more people were out there offering who hadn't been able to before. And the first thing they wanted to do was be able just to offer a little bit of rice back to the sangha. So this sense of mutuality, you know, the, my mind can go, well, big deal, three spoons of rice, da 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 I mean, that's so pathetic, you know, that my mind could even go that way. Rather than just appreciating this sense of how this generosity and the receiving is in that moment really purifying the habits. It's bringing a real happiness to people on both levels just to be able to offer like that. So I just give a few little... Now I just want to read a few little things that I like because maybe it will, maybe it won't, but just to get a sense hopefully, of how just hearing about generosity can bring this kind of happiness to our heart and mind and recognizing it's not the happiness because it's not about you, but just the, and if you, if it doesn't, you say, so what? Okay, just notice that. So, this, I, I cut this out years and years ago from the New York Times. This guy's probably been, I don't even know when, he's probably been dead. But his name, Matt, Matt Dawson, who um, at the time of this writing was 78 years old, and he was still working for the Ford Motor Company in Detroit. He'd been working for them for 59 years, driving a forklift, and take, doing as much overtime as he possibly could, just so he could give most of it away. He said he uh, had... He had donated more than a million dollars to schools and charities since 1994. He said, I get joy, happiness out of this. I can go home and sleep good. And he only got as far as seventh grade in Shreveport, Louisiana, came to Detroit in 1940 and started working. And he said, no matter how much you make or how little you make, you've got to save a little of that. 
I was raised like that to help others. I have more than enough for himself, for myself. More than enough doesn't include vacations. He drives an old Ford Escort, has a one-bedroom apartment in not a very nice section of Detroit. It's a big house, a big car. That doesn't excite me. And he earns about $100,000 a year. So the first recipient of his donations was the United Negro College Fund, which got $50,000. And then since then, $180,000 more. He's given $200,000 to Louisiana State University. He's given $20,000 to the NAACP, uh, $112,000 to churches in Detroit and Louisiana, and on and on. Amazing, huh? So this is like, it just makes him happy to do this. Okay, this is a note I got a few years ago from a woman who's been, you know, on retreat here. She said, I have been on the verge of quitting a job I no longer need, need in quotation marks, and wondering if or how this job serves me. I've decided to keep the job for five or six more months and give all the earnings away to causes that I love. And this cause, this was uh, donating to some nuns in Burma, this cause is the first of many. So thank you. She's saying thank you for the chance to offer this money because this gift brings me great joy and opens a whole new chapter of work as Donna to the world. That's the sense. Not like I'm doing such a great thing. Thank you for the opportunity. That's something they say in Burma a lot. Opportunity for Donna. That's a very common phrase. Oh, there's an opportunity for Donna. Do we think like that? Do you think like that? Wow, here's an opportunity for Donna. But that's a very common phrase and expression. Okay, another story. This is a nun in Burma. And I've uh, known her for quite a few years. And she was, um, you know, had a small nunnery near Min, not a lot of, another poor nunnery, just barely pulling it together. We first met her, no electricity, and a friend of ours donated like a few hundred dollars to get electricity kind of thing. So a few years ago, she came to the meditation center where a few friends were staying because people, generous friends, offer money that we take in and give to different nunneries and schools. So she knew this. I mean, everybody knows everything that's happening. So she came, uh, and we knew her for a while. And we'd never, you know, she's like nice enough, seemed a little bit depressed. Nothing didn't really seem to have any kind of special spark, you could say. But anyway, she came and she said, um, she said, I, I really want to start a school, a school for the really young children, grades one through four, because there was a, a nunnery school that a lot of the poor kids go to who can't afford the all the hidden fees in the government school, but it's about, it's about a 40 minute walk. So all the little nuns, but all the other poor kids walk up there. But in the rainy season, it's just a sea of mud and they really can't make it. So she said, I wanna start this school for these little kids. And we're like, really? <laughs> you know? And she said, you know, I just, I can't sleep. I just, so, and I just 
want to find support so I can do this. I'm just, my mind is so urgent in my mind. I can't sleep well. I can't eat well. I just want to start this school. So we're like, okay, well, you know, we did have some, we could offer some money, a few thousand dollars. And then the next year we came back and it was amazing what you can do with not that much money. So he's like just kind of a lean-to, just a shelter. She already had 130 little kids. So that means, you got to realize, it means not only does she have to build that, invite the kids, but to hire teachers and pay regular teachers all on donations. So it's not just the donation to start it, it's money she has to keep raising to pay teachers every month to keep it going. Also, because there's only a tiny bit of land, there were 24 nuns in this nunnery and they'd had to um, tear down one of the buildings they lived in. You know, they had a building to eat, buildings to live in. And they tore down one of them and they were all crowded into this other little building to eat and live so that all this space could be for the school. So she, and we're like, wow. So she came, but the, the really interesting thing was, and she came to talk, and she looked radiant. She looked so happy. She looked like, you know, a completely different person in her mind. And she said, you know, even though, you know, now I must work really hard to raise the money every month for the teachers and to keep building new buildings. And then you need toilets. You have these kids there all day. You've got to build a bunch of toilets, you know, and then you have to build a water tank and you have to make your well deeper. I mean, it just keeps going. All of this has to be donated money. Plus, never mind their food and all. She said, but... Now I feel so happy. I'm sleeping well. The energy to this school, my mind is calm and happy. I'll be so happy if I can just do this for the rest of my life. And that was a few years ago. I mean, she's still doing it, you know, and it's, I mean, sometimes she looks really tired. It's, it really is a lot of work. It's not like la la la. It's an incredible amount of work. It's an incredible responsibility because really with the, when, when there's a, a nunnery, the head nun really is the one who carries all the weight. But this sense of inner calm and happiness and this radiance that comes from it was really palpable. So just seeing that, this quality of generosity. Okay, one last little story. Again, it's from, from Burma. Again, some years ago, before the country was so cold open and before they had a regular money changing. Now you can change your money in a normal way. You can actually go to a money changer place. But before, it was a trip and a half. And so it's all so-called black market, but that's what everybody did. But because we'd bring in donations, we'd have a fair amount of money. And at that, t- at that time, they would have like this a thousand chat note is about equal to a dollar. And sometimes you'd only get 500 chat notes. And so if you were changing like $10,000, you would literally, literally have a pile like this. You know, it was, it was crazy. And then you'd have to, you know, contact the money changers and have them come 
come, you'd have to meet him somewhere, you know, we'd meet at a friend's place and they'd come with all these stacks of money and you'd negotiate and all of this. And sometimes it felt like, you know, a sleazy drug deal, <laughs> except that this is, you know, what everyone did. So this particular time, we were just doing the thing and talking and they were kind of young guys. It really felt more like that than usual, sleazy drug deal. And so then, then we left and and our, our friend, uh, a, a woman who owns a and b was kind of the intermediary. So then later, after we left, she gave us the money. And she said, oh, and here's another $400. We said, what's that from? She didn't want to say, but we pressed her. So as we'd been changing the money, and the guys were just doing their thing, you know, with their computers and all, and we were just talking back and forth amongst ourselves about how we could use this to build toilets here and this with the nuns. We were just chatting, but they were listening. And so after we left, they went to our friend, the intermediary, and said, what they're doing, you know, this is great. We want to offer $400. They didn't want thanks. They didn't even want to be known. They were doing it, you know, kind of anonymously. Just this sense of wanting to offer from people, you know, you'd never expect it. And that, that sense of the happiness of it. It's really a lovely thing. Another aspect, though, that I want to um, is it? want to acknowledge oh, here we go. is as well the sense of the mutuality, not just the offering. And it's not just about money, it's about time, it's about a smile, it's about whatever but also the same openness to be receiving with dignity, the offering with dignity and the receiving with dignity and the not wanting to kind of shut it down, you know, or say, oh, no, 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 you keep that for yourself, you need it more. Which sometimes in a place where, you know, I feel like I have so much more and someone wants to offer, the sense is to say, no, 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 you know, I don't want to take that. And that's not the spirit of generosity at all. It kind of makes a block in the whole thing. Another simple example, some nuns we were visiting, they wanted to invite a few of us to a meal, to a lunch. So we go and they they make this huge spread. I have photos, you know, of a table with like 25 different little plates of curries and fruits and this and that on it. And we know this is more than that whole nunnery has to eat for a week. We're well aware of that. And there's a sense of, don't do this, you know. This is crazy. Take this food and eat it. We don't want it. But then you realize, no, there's so much happiness and dignity in being able to offer that to receive with appreciation and dignity keeps the whole cycle going, the whole circle going. And the sense of no, not is really, you know, it's like a, it's a sense of self. It's not really the purity of heart-mind. So exploring that more and more, too. This is from Ajahn Pasano, but he's kind of commenting on a sutta of the Buddha. 
When one is generous and delights in giving, in offering, the heart tends to be satisfied and joyous. This supports development of virtue. As a heart that is satisfied and contented easily inclines to restraint and composure. With this composure, together with the lack of remorse that virtue affords, the heart is easily settled and focused. So the meditation progresses more smoothly. The mind, the heart naturally brightens, making it suitable for seeing things as they truly are. It's really the whole essence of the practice, right? So it is important to recognize this tendency that wholesome qualities foster further wholesome qualities so that we nurture the appropriate causes for the results that we are seeking. So in, you know, times when the conditions on retreat or off retreat, you really get it, this isn't just about retreat, when subtlety of attention isn't available. But attention to actions and generosity, that's always available. And it's not just to be good, it's really the act that we can do to purify the heart and mind, and it's the pure heart that recognizes Nibbana in whatever aspect, on or off retreat. So this is really what we're doing. All right, there's a little time. I just want to say quickly and then talk a bit, a little bit about virtue. Once when Upandita was here teaching, a Nepalese monk, a Nepalese Sayadaw, was here with him, Unyanapanika. He gave a lovely talk on dana, on generosity. And out of that talk, there were seven, just seven little aspects of the practice of offering, of giving. And I just want to quickly mention it. Not, you know, have to remember and clock through all of them, but just to bring it up. So one, when we're giving, and again, it doesn't have to be things. It can be time. It can be caring, whatever it is. So we begin by really giving mindfulness attention to the motivation, to the volition, really purify before we give. The Tibetans would say it's like the generous act of the bodhisattvas. With this act, may all beings be free from suffering. That's a great purification. But even just, as I said, not just throwing the, oh yeah, here, have some rice, you know, really purifying, tuning in, bringing mindfulness to the motivation. And then in whatever one is giving, whatever it is, time, service, money, recognize if there's any clinging, if we're really holding on, and see if you can abandon that. And abandon it not by this should go away, but if you tune into the happiness of the giving, then in that moment, the clinging isn't there. You really can feel that. And then, this is something Upandita said, it's not appropriate here on retreat. This one I'm about to say, okay? (laughs) If possible, giving and receiving directly, face to face. That's something that is uh, kind of built in to the way it works in the, in the nunneries and the monasteries in Thailand and Burma. And 
there's something, it's a kind of a formal ritual, but there's something really beautiful about it. So you go and even you offer, go to a nunnery, and you offer like a pile of money, <laughs> like these huge piles, it wouldn't be that much. It really looks much more impressive. But there's a real form, they get a tray, you put it on the tray, you hold it, they hold it, you hold it together, and then you chant, they chant a blessing, you chant together. And then often all the monks will, all the nuns or the monks will come and chant a whole gratitude metta sutta. It's really, even the little nunlets, it's really very beautiful and touching. It's a sense of, of really appreciating in both ways. It's so different from writing a check and mailing it off. But here, I mean, okay, I mean, I can't go down to Amnesty and meet somebody and say, please, you know, take my check. That's just how it works here. But doing that face-to-face really has a power. Not on retreat. <laughs> not writing each other notes. Not doing here, but but when it's appropriate. And then when you're giving, again, with, with mindfulness, really being focused on the giving. You know, of course, that's the mindfulness is the thread through all of this, just knowing what we're doing as we're doing. After giving, continuing to be mindful of the motivation, of the intention. You know, because sometimes it comes, oh, should I have really given that? oh, maybe I could use it in 10 years, you know? And then just bringing in the mindfulness, again, re-clarifying the intention. The sixth, which is interesting, clear comprehension of the broader context of giving a gift that as well as you can tell is appropriate, you know? So if, I don't want to go in the whole story, but, but if, say, giving a gift of something to someone who's an addict and your gift is just going to take them deeper into trouble, that might not be the gift to give. You can't always tell, but if you can, seeing what's appropriate. And then receiving in that same mindful, open, connected way. So that sense of self and other is really cut through with generosity. Okay. So the second aspect of these kalesa of transgression is the aspect of sila, of non-harming behavior. So you're much more familiar with this, but to really see how, say, using the precepts, they're kind of like a, a guideline, right? If the, if the kalesa, the wanting or the ill will comes up really strongly, and it's about to drive us. Sometimes just the intellectual idea of the precept will kind of help us bounce back and not do it, hopefully, right? But the, again, they're meant to be guidelines to tune us into our own, the motivation, the quality in the mind and heart. So obeying, obeying the precepts, but hating them and not really looking at motivation, that, I mean, it's better than hurting people. Okay, it's better than nothing. But that's not purifying, really, in this way, these kalesa of transgression. But really to look and see. Something I think we don't always realize. You know, when we see the sense of greed coming up really strongly, and you just, I don't know, you want to take some shampoo that you know isn't yours, and you think, well, but no one will care. But you manage, 
not to do it. You restrain yourself. That restraint is a wholesome action. And I don't know, for me, I would always just tend to focus on, well, I wanted to do it. I'm so bad. I shouldn't have had that wanting. But noticing that moment of restraint, that moment of abandoning, that strength of wanting. Maybe there's still wanting in the mind, but that level of transgression, it wasn't strong enough. You didn't act on it. Same with ill will. When you, you know, bite off hurting somebody, when you manage to keep your mouth shut, when some really unpleasant thing's about to come out, all the different ways. This quality of restraint is actually working to transform the habits of consciousness on this level. So we're still going to notice, you know, it's not getting rid of greed and ill will, but it is weakening. And maybe, hopefully you've noticed, I mean, probably many of us have a, a commitment to living with the five, five lay precepts in our life anyway. But even here on retreat and taking them, and as the mind gets more subtle, I bet there's times when you really have noticed this coming up and, and the, the, the ill will or the greed and the wanting to act on it like seems more obvious. And the sense of restraint maybe arises more easily. Or it comes up and you just know you're not going to act on it. There's a real um, happiness that can come as you begin to have more confidence in the, the habit of sila, of virtue, in your heart and mind, that you can learn to, not that you're always going to be perfect, but that you can really trust that more. It really is a lovely, lovely quality, and it is really transforming consciousness. Just a simple example. I use this a lot, but it was a funny story. I was with a friend at Spirit Rock. It wasn't on retreat. And we're in the bookstore. You know, this. if you've been to Spirit Rock, you know this bookstore, this Maha bookstore. There's so much stuff in it you can buy. Um, I'm glad we don't have something like that here. And anyway, we went in, this friend and I, and I wanted a particular little statue that I didn't see in the bookstore. But she sometimes volunteered there, so she knew where... There were these closets somewhere else just filled with statues. So she took me there, knew how to open it with the secret magnet opening. So we're opening it, and it's just like shelf after shelf after shelf of all these statues. So we're, you know, we're piling through it, looking for this one particular Tara that I wanted, and, uh, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. But we each pull, at the same moment, we each pulled out a different one. It's a Manjushri one, which has like this little sword. And both of us, we just barely touched it and the sword broke. Each of us at the same time. So we're holding it with this broken sword and we just kind of looked at each other. We didn't say anything. And then we kind of said, oh, well, I guess we have to go tell Marianne. We broke this. We'll have to pay for it. But later, we both saw how in our mind, just for a fraction, it went through we could put it back and no one will ever know. No one would have ever known. We both had that thought, and there was like, it was so clear in both of our minds that that was going nowhere. That was never even an option. And we both could feel, not like I'm so great, that's, that's not the happiness of purity, but this sense of, wow, it's so lovely to have confidence 
in, in just, I'm not going to steal. You know, I can kind of trust the heart and mind. You can really see that, can feel the purity of that, you know. So we did. We went off and told our friend, she's a good friend who runs the store, the bookstore. Like, we felt like two bad little girls, you know, going to the kindergarten teacher. And she didn't care. Ah, we glue it on. We sell it half price. It happens all the time. Just so you know, check it out if you're buying something. <laughs> if it's half price, check it out. <laughs> Don't tell Marianne I said that. <laughs> but this real appreciation. And another thing that really supports Sila is restraint at the sense doors. Two ways of that. Restraint, one is the sense of keeping it more simple here. You know, not restraint if we avoid everything that may elicit greed or aversion, because that's impossible. And that's not purifying. That's avoiding completely. But we make it simpler here, right? So there's a support. That's restraint at the sense doors. And when your mind's all over the place, sometimes it's helpful when you're walking not to look around like this, you know, just keep it simple. When you're sitting in the hall, don't be checking out what everybody else is doing, because you can see it just leads to greed, it just leads to aversion. Restraint at the sense doors. But another level of restraint at the sense doors isn't so much about, you know, you don't look at all, but you bring, as Buddha Dasa says, satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, right at the point of sense contact. So they're seeing, they're like, oh yeah, oh that looks so good, maybe that juice looks really good, let me go have some juice, nobody's looking, nobody will see, just what's happening, seeing, just come right back, seeing, mindfulness, wisdom at the sense doors, they're seeing, it's pleasant, there's wanting, you're just right there with it. You don't have to go off into all the papancha and the moving away from mindfulness, which tends to lead into acting out of kalesa without recognizing it. So this restraint, the satipanya at the sense doors, is what we've been talking about in terms of mindfulness. It's not hating experience. It's just knowing it for what it is. Because as we move into the world, we're not going to go through life never seeing things we want, never, not, never hearing things that elicit ill will. Stuff's going to happen. God knows, right? It happens here. So the sense of restraint at the sense doors really supports sila, really supports not acting out of kalesa. And again, noticing, really bringing mindfulness wisdom to the feeling, the appreciation of the wholesomeness, recognizing, as Ajahn Buddhadasa says, those moments of coolness when the heart and mind is free of kalesa. Not waiting until you can get concentrated enough to have a really subtle sitting. If that's not happening, cultivating qualities of dana, qualities of sila, of virtue, is always available. It's not like second best either. Everything, all aspects of our life, all aspects of the teaching are in support of the purifying the habits of heart and mind to recognize things as they really are. I just want to end with this um, sutta from the Buddha about really wise reflection. Just so you'll read part of it. This is a a lay person is saying, you know, 
you know, you teach all these deep teachings, but what about cleanse people like us who are living at home and we can't practice like you? So we give six reflections, but these two are the main ones. There's the case where you recollect your own virtues. They are unbroken, unspotted, liberating, praised by the wise, untarnished, conducive of concentration. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting virtue, her mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Her mind heads straight based on virtue. And when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the noble one has a sense of the goal, a sense of the Dhamma, experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. In one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body grows calm. One whose body is calmed experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Then on, furthermore, the case where you recollect your own generosity. It is a great gain for me that among people overcome with possessiveness, I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being magnanimous, responsive to requests, delighting in the distribution of alms. And the same thing, at any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting generosity, her mind is not overcome with greed, hatred, confusion. This is like not just about feeling good. This is the transformation of the habits, the transformation of consciousness. The same thing. And one has a sense of the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma, and the same. And then at the end for that, he said, So, Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity or this recollection of virtue while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home, crowded with children. <laughs> in other words, any time it's available to us. No aspect of our life is outside of this quality that can really transform our consciousness to the pure heart and mind which sees Nibbana. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.